Authentic learning, interdisciplinary instruction, and in a Google search for education buzzwords, the phrase outdoor learning cropped up as terms educators are using in our eternal conversation about how to best reach our students. Today's conversation highlights a dramatically effective case study in precisely what these words evoke. Students in Johnny Clore's course, Lewis and Clark with the American Indians, a senior elective at the Lawrenceville School in Lawrence, New Jersey, build from scratch and with raw material that is not a kit, a 17 and a half foot wood canvas canoe in the context of an interdisciplinary biology history course about North American flora and the history of the Lewis and Clark expedition with emphasis on wildlife it encountered and the complexity of the expedition's interaction with indigenous people. I met Johnny on staff in 2004 at Kiwaden, an outdoor adventure camp in Vermont with a special emphasis on canoe camping supported by one of North America's largest wood canvas canoe fleets. He was still a high school student then, but while continuing to return to Kiwaden, Johnny went through college and graduate school en route to his current career as a biology teacher that last year brought him to a long-standing ambition have his students undertake and complete the incredibly intricate process of, as he puts it in the interview, bringing a canoe to life. Johnny Kaur, tell us about your professional standing or life. What do you do? Yeah, so I am a science teacher at the Lawrenceville School in Lawrenceville, New Jersey. So I teach biology primarily. Lived for nine years in a dorm with, with senior boys and senior girls at different phases. And now have the privilege of also teaching a, a class about canoeing and canoeing in relation to the Lewis and Clark expedition. What year in the profession is this for you? Oh, let's see. So this is my 10th year at Lawrenceville. Uh, prior to Lawrenceville, I was at another school for two years. So I guess uh, year 12. And it sounds like the course that we'll be discussing today is sort of the center of this interview is one that's still still offered or you still have the opportunity to teach it correct yeah so it, it's a two-term course it's offered every winter and spring um i only teach the spring component wherein we focus on the the canoeing aspect uh a little bit more and the botany a little bit more uh the guy who i co-teach with drew inzer he runs it over the course of the winter where they have a primary focus on the lewis and clark expedition and their experiences with uh, the different native peoples uh, along the way so if I'm hearing right, it's a it's an interdisciplinary history slash natural history course. Correct. Yeah, it's an interdisciplinary housed in the history department here, uh, but with elements in the visual arts department where we're working in the wood shop and building the canoe and elements of from the um, science department where we're learning about botany. We're already alluding to a variety of things that might be slightly confusing to listeners and the medium that brought this to my attention and inspired my interest in this interview was an article in a magazine. What's the background to your, I guess, brief turn as a magazine writer? Sure. So uh, the magazine you're referencing is the Wooden Canoe Journal, which is probably the magazine with the smallest um, subscribership <laughs> out there. You can't go and buy it on a, a grocery store shelf, but uh, it is delivered quarterly to uh, members of the Wooden Canoe Heritage Association. Um, and the article that I wrote for them was about uh, the course that I taught. It's been years uh, in the making to, to bring this course to fruition. 
when I arrived at Lawrenceville, I had just spent a full year building canoes and paddling canoes um, from Vermont through Canada and to the James Bay, which is a sort of southern offshoot of the Hudson Bay. And when I got to Lawrenceville, I was already keen to figure out how we could work canoe building into the curriculum there. Let me just interrupt. So that for our listeners, just to put that in geographical perspective for people who aren't sure where those locations are, how many miles was that trip? So about a 1200 mile trip over the course of 70 days. Um, and myself, a group of nine other guys, we had spent the year leading up to that building the canoes and raising money actually for scholarships uh, to Kuwait in the, the summer camp that we had grown up attending and then also serving on staff at. Yeah. So I was, I was eager to figure out how we could kind of weave that passion of mine and that sort of newfound pseudo expertise of mine um, into the curriculum. But uh, an obvious opportunity didn't really present itself for multiple years, but then eventually the school built a new wood shop in, in its sort of maker space area that it has. And a friend of mine, who's also a teacher was really getting interested in Lewis and Clark and I had become more interested in botany, and we recognized an opportunity to put those three things together. And he would teach the historical aspects of the course. I would teach the botanical aspects of the course. And together, we would work to, to build a canoe, um, linking all those things together. So once we had planned the course, it was time for us to teach the course. And then uh, the pandemic hit. We got sidelined for a year, um, couldn't build a canoe over Zoom. Uh, and then finally, when we came back to campus last spring, um, spring 2021, we were able to build our first canoe as a part of that course. And that's the canoe that's the sort of object of your attention in the article that you wrote. Correct. For anyone who actually is curious about the visuals who might at this point hit pause and go elsewhere to look at pictures of this and maybe see what's going on, where where could listeners go? Yeah, there's a couple of places that would be uh good one is you not of my particular canoe but if you're interested in looking at a lot of pictures of canoes that are built in this way you can go to woodencanoe.org that's the website of the wooden canoe heritage association if you're interested in some specific pictures from that article that are of our canoe the easiest way is to go to lawrenceville.org and just search in the upper right hand corner um, for wooden canoe journal and my article will come up pretty quickly there in the in the news archive. You click on that. It has the article that I wrote and also the pictures that were in that article. The URL for that article itself is super long. So probably your best bet is just to search for it. No, oh, good plan. Good plan. In terms of, uh, again, just to sort of do the scene establishment before you get into the educational nitty gritty, how would you describe to people entirely unfamiliar with boats? the construction of a wooden canoe, you know, what's going on with that? Sure. So it's a, a multi-step process. I think everyone kind of has a picture in their mind of what a canoe looks like. So hold that picture in mind. Now imagine flipping it upside down and then taking about two and a half inch wide by about a quarter inch thick strips of cedar and bending them over the course, over the top of that upside down canoe. That's the first stage. That upside down canoe is actually a structure that we call a form that's custom built for this purpose. It has strips of metal to reinforce it and it sets the shape of the boat. You bend those strips of cedar around it. Those are called the ribs um, and you attach them to the edges. Ultimately, you can then pull those ribs attached to the edges off of that form, that upside down canoe. And now what you have is this 
skeleton sort of of a canoe that skeleton of a canoe ends up getting planking put along it the planks run the 17 feet from end to end of the boat they provide a sort of sheathing of the canoe which is later sat into a, a canvas sort of hammock and the the canvas stretches up along the sides of the canoe is tacked on and that provides the ultimately the outer skin of the canoe before you seal it and paint it. Uh, but that's the kind of a rough overview of how a canoe is built. So what you just described is basically a, a process of, I guess, bringing wood together into a symmetrical kind of narrow canoe shape, for lack of a better yeah. term, you know, hull that's, you know, watertight and lightweight. It's amazing. Right. Yeah. Just, uh, just sort of for fun, I can't help it. But like in, in the various steps and parts of the canoe, is there a part of the canoe that to you is just sort of instantiates the, the spirit of it better than anything else, your favorite kind of element? Or is it just so integrated that you, you couldn't, you know? Yeah, I don't know. It's pretty integrated for me. I mean, my favorite parts, I, the putting the ribs on is one of my favorite parts because it goes pretty quickly. Um, mm -hmm. There's something like 44 ribs that run over the length of the canoe. And in a day, you know, you're pulling them out of the steam box, bending them, nailing them in place. And pretty quickly, you've got this skeleton of the canoe built up all of a sudden. I like that part because all of a sudden the boat seems to be coming to life. My other favorite part is where the planking attaches to the stem. So the stem is, if you imagine the end of a canoe where it curves up um, from the bottom, mm -hmm. that's the stem. And where the planking attaches to the stem and you nail it in place and you shave off the excess planking there. And all of a sudden the end of the canoe shape starts to, to form. That's one of my favorite parts for sure, because now the canoe is really coming to life. You can see what it ultimately will look like. Um, and any passerby can start to see, oh, there's a canoe. So you're talking about that graceful like bow or stern curve. Exactly. The yeah. transitions from the top of the canoe down to the bottom of the hull. Yeah, exactly. And it's kind of a defining line, right? It is. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. There's there. Uh, I sort of jokingly with my uh, friend who teaches the course with me, we call ourselves stem smiths, which is a very old, I think, Viking term mm -hmm. because the stem is so central to the shape of the boat. Um, they called the boat builders stem smiths. So we kind of refer to ourselves that way, <laughs> tongue in cheek. That's a fantastic summary of a fairly complex skill intensive process that if I'm understanding correctly, you supervise students, they, they do it. They do the actual physical work, right? Yeah, exactly. We had um, two sections worth of 14 students apiece. They're seniors. Um, they've spent the whole winter learning about Lewis and Clark in the spring. We focus on the botanical discoveries of Lewis and Clark. They um, collected a number of specimens over the course of their expedition uh, and brought them back. Some of them are actually still on display in Philadelphia. The, the Lewis and Clark herbarium can be seen there for a number of the specimens they brought back. So we learn about that botany uh, and at the same time use some of the plants that they brought back uh, as materials for the canoe itself. And so the students are learning about that at the same time that they're actually doing this labor of, of building the canoe. It's almost like a uh, exercise in material science. Yeah, it's, it is, um, you know, we quiz the kids on what tree was used to make this planking or what tree was used to make these ribs and, um, and why. And they can start to tell you that, you know, the Western red cedar is very rot resistant, very lightweight, 
very vertical grain, very straight grain. So that's perfect for making a 17 foot long plank. You would never be able to find a northern white cedar, which was sufficiently long, straight grained um, and not free in order to make a 17 foot long plank. On the other hand, the western red cedar doesn't bend particularly nicely, where the northern white cedar responds to steam treatment exceptionally well and then becomes remarkably pliable as you bend it over the form. So, yeah, they're they're learning kind of all those intricacies of the of the woods we use uh, as they build them. I guess what's compelling to me about what you're describing here to me as a teacher is that they're learning information, but they're also they're quite literally feeling it and applying their knowledge and, and doing something real with it. Like this is so far beyond abstract that how could they ever forget this? Yeah. I mean, I think that's part of the goal. I had, I love uh, plant identification, but it's a pretty dry topic um, and it can be pretty hard to, to keep someone engaged in that task. We have a couple of days throughout the course of the curriculum where we go out into the woods and do some, some tree ID. Um, but it's pretty disconnected, I think, for a lot of the students to, to do that just by itself. So it's, it's nice for them to realize this tree is this plank, is this part of the canoe, really be able to put their hands on it. Were there cases of students who maybe struggle with purely abstract encounters with course material, maybe who weren't of a scientific bent, who, on the other hand, manifested a talent for the workmanship side of that? You know, in other words, did they have a chance to shine in that way? Yeah, that's definitely true. Um, I think there's a there's a different kind of intelligence which lends itself towards that kind of craftsmanship. And there absolutely were students whose whose essays are probably not as strong as their uh, their their work on the canoe itself. Was there personal connection with that dynamic evident? Like, could you could you see that happening or? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think it's an interesting thing. Most of our students had never. Well, none of our students had ever built a canoe before many of them had never done something as simple as swing a hammer before. And many of them demonstrated some degree of trepidation around the construction because they didn't want to screw things up. They didn't want to um, mess up some part of the canoe that couldn't be fixed. And we had students on the first day hammering screws into where they were supposed to be hammering nails into. So there was a lot of a a learning curve that went along with it. Um, And some of them kind of maintained that level of trepidation throughout the course of the the term and others really uh, started to feel a lot more comfortable and were eager to take on more and more responsibility um, in the process as they learned how to bend a rib without breaking it and learned how to trim the plank so that it fits snugly next to the plank uh, adjacent to it. So there were definitely some who leaned into that and and asked for more and wanted additional tasks to do um, so that their hand their fingerprints were all over the canoe. Did did the students have opportunities out of class time to come to your workspace and and yeah, move, some move we've, a... yeah Drew the guy who I taught the course with he and I frequently were in there sort of extra hours doing some fine tuning between sessions getting the boat ready for the next session and students were able to come to some of those sessions to help us sort of set up the next phase. For example, you know before we could. <clears throat> I'm trying to think of a good example. There's a lot of steps that needed to happen in order for the big 
sort of flashy steps to happen in class. Um, a lot of behind the scenes work. So we had students who would participate in that um, during extra hours. For example, shaping the thwarts, you know, like so that those are ready to install the next day in class. The thwart is a piece of wood that runs side to side from uh, across the canoe and helps to hold the sides of the canoe together so they don't start to unfold. Um, so shaping one of those thwarts out of a raw plank of wood is a task that you need to accomplish before you can then install it, obviously. And those are some of those sort of extra tasks that students would would be able to do outside of the class time. Yeah, and what's kind of cool about that is that for listeners unfamiliar with wooden boats, thwarts traditionally have a sort of beautiful, sinuous shape to them. You know, it's not just like a plank that goes across the center of the boat, but, you know, beautifully rounded and curved, you know, outwardly, I guess, convex curves so that it can sit comfortably on shoulders of a person, say, portaging the canoe. You've already referenced this, but I'll go ahead and pose it as a question that I, I think that will connect with some of your thinking as an educator. What, what educational philosophies that you kind of carry around in your pedagogical suitcase kind of converged on this project and the way you designed this course? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a number of sort of educational philosophies at play here. One is just that anytime you can teach something that you're really passionate about, I think that comes through and that the kids really get a kick out of that and they kind of feed on that energy and that passion. And canoes are certainly a passion of mine. So I had been looking, like I said, for years for an opportunity to weave canoeing and canoe building into the curriculum uh, because I love it so much. So I think that's part of it. Um, I think another part of it is this was sort of perfect in a pandemic world where we had all been spending a lot of time on Zoom. I think everybody had a lot of fatigue from being indoors, wearing their masks all the time on a computer screen. This was perfect for breaking that cycle. We actually did a lot of the building outdoors where we could. Um, we just wheeled the form right outside the building and bent the ribs and put the planks on out there so the kids could unmask during portions of the process. You know, no computers anywhere in sight, very, um, you know, very analog in that way. So I think that that was really important for the kids getting a lot out of it. I think the interdisciplinary nature of the class was also really helpful for them because they had already been learning for a whole term about the history of the Lewis and Clark expedition, the history of the, the native people that they had encountered along the way. Uh, and a canoe was really a perfect way to, to bring a lot of that to life. Um, Lewis and Clark used canoes throughout huge portions of their, of their journey West. Um, they did not use any wood canvas canoes that, that style had not been invented yet at that point. Um, they used massive dugout canoes. Um, but just the, we often talked about this parallel historical experience of they spent time in canoe camp, felling these huge trees and, and constructing the dugouts with them. So we were gonna have this parallel experience where we were gonna be building our canoe also while reading the journal articles from the Lewis and Clark expedition which allow, I think, a lot of it to be more real, to be more tangible uh, to the students. Um, and then weaving in the botany to it as well. I think we already kind of talked about this, but doing plant identification is one thing where you could recognize this leaf belongs to this tree or um, 
this tree has these kinds of characteristics, but those are kind of meaningless facts until all of a sudden you're putting them to use and they see right with your hands that the northern white cedar wood is is supple and pliable after steam treatment and the western red cedar doesn't respond in that same way but has these beautiful long vertical grains and they start to really know and understand those trees in a way that they don't otherwise so it really brings it to life um, and i think you mentioned this also too different students shine in different modalities and you know typically in the classroom we might think about a writing a paper versus taking a test versus giving a presentation, right? Those are the different modalities, but those still ultimately leverage a lot of the same sort of intelligences. And this allowed kids to really leverage an entirely different uh, set of intelligences um, to demonstrate their, their mastery of this material, which I think was great. That segues logically into something I've been looking forward to asking you about, which is kind of maybe, I don't know, some closely observed anecdotes about student reactions to this whole project like what did you see in front of you in terms of the students response to this i mean they loved it that is the short answer i think um and signups for the course for this year actually reflect how much they loved it last year uh, and how much you know we were building in a very public space and kids were walking by and seeing our progress and asking about it uh and i think it's just a it's an inherently engaging thing to watch a canoe come to life in front of your eyes. Uh, and I think the students experienced that engagement and uh, and we were, again, recognized that in the signups for this year, we had way more kids sign up for the class than we could actually ultimately enroll in the class. Um, yeah. what, what's the maximum number you can accommodate? It sounds like about 15 per section, two sections. Yeah, I think we have a maximum at 14 per section. We have two sections of it, so 28 kids. Mm-hmm. The sections presumably alternate in their encounter with the boat. Yeah, exactly. So um, for a lot of the tasks, the tasks are multi-day things. So one section would end up bending some number of ribs and the next section comes in and bends, you know, the next set of however many ribs. So a lot of the time, both sections got to do the same task because it was a, a multi-period task. You know, when a period is only an hour long, uh, you can't get but so much done in that one period. But sometimes the tasks were kind of alternating where one period would apply the coat of paint and then the next day, the other period would apply the next coat of paint, you know, so mm -hmm. kind of alternating uh, like that. When it was the case that the two sections met on the same day and the first one had already applied a coat of paint, which was now drying, then we would do different things with the other section, like go for a walk in the woods to do some of the tree identification that of the species that we were using in the boat or um, or actually go for a paddle on the school pond and learn some of the canoeing skills that kind of go along with uh, with canoeing in general. Just in terms of the students' interactions with this, did they record and put out through social media kind of their experience? Like, it seems like it's just so aesthetically interesting. They must have had some like selfies with the boat or this is my rib. <laughs> yeah. yeah, they did do some of that. I mean, um, I think a lot of it was on their own sort of like personal accounts, right? Their own Instagram account or whatever, but they were definitely taking a lot of pictures with the boat, um, sort of goofy poses uh, with the various stages of the boat, which we saw some of, but I think some of it was uh, relegated to the private life of our, of our students. Um, and they're sharing it with each other. We did have a couple of students who at the end of the term shared with us uh, large albums of the construction process with them sort of selfied into there. Um, 
so they were definitely very engaged with it and uh their parents when they came at graduation last year were very eager to see the boat i think it had clearly been a topic of conversation you know on phone calls home um because you know listen i teach traditional biology classes all the time and i think they're great and we do lots of engaging things um but telling your parents about the canoe that you're building uh is probably going to top telling your kids about the you know particular fly genetics you're you're researching right now <laughs> yeah so we've been talking about this with the sort of foregone conclusion that it all worked out because with hindsight we know it did however in the course of planning this and pondering it did you ever wonder if this was even possible if there was a risk of overreach or were you entirely confident that this was all going to happen i know the whole process stressed me out from start to finish as much as i loved it it also was incredibly stressful because it was a little bit risky in a way right like i i can dial in a an honors biology curriculum you know any day it's it's uh i know that i can accomplish that uh this was new uh, i'd never built a canoe with students in fact it had been 10 years since i'd built a canoe at all so yeah it was i don't know if i would say it was touch and go but there were definitely moments where we weren't sure if we were going to get it done in fact we we put the last coat of paint on the day after all the kids graduated. So we technically didn't even <laughs> fully get it done while they were all here. So yeah, that risk of overreach was real. Um, and there were parts that didn't go perfectly where my own sort of personal perfectionism had to be put to the side uh, in recognition mm. of the fact that we were building a boat with a bunch of students who had never done this before and they were having an amazing experience doing it. Oh yeah. I, I literally mm. lost sleep during the building process. It's a funny thing because I'd been wanting to do this for years and years. We were finally getting to do it and I loved doing it and I loved the final product, but it really did stress me out. <laughs> I wanted it to be right. Um, uh. You know, it was a lot of time and resources poured into making the canoe. You want it to come out and be something you can can feel proud of which in the end we we certainly do i think we surpassed everybody's expectations for for what the boat would would be like yeah it's uh, i think this year with uh, having done it once and we sort of had a pandemic schedule last year which was slightly de-densified so we actually had fewer periods over the course of the whole term um, and this year we're back to a somewhat more normal schedule so i think we feel good about being able to get the whole thing done before they graduate so they can all get out on the pond in it this sounds like a very much a case where your next time through you'll be able to proceed with more alacrity and confidence yeah and, absolutely and i mean a, a big part of it is knowing exactly the pacing like how long will it take for the classes to get all the ribs on the canoe that will allow us to know when do we need to have the planking ready um, and how can we plan all this into the syllabus? So yeah, definitely. We'll be able to, to be much more efficient the next time. So where do you go from here with this? In other words, uh, are there next steps? Do you, will you just continue offering the course? What's next? Yeah, we'll continue offering the course. Uh, and so next step is next canoe in some ways. Um, the other thing that we've done sort of in conjunction with this course is Drew really is the, he has leaned in a lot to the the native history and their encounters with the Lewis and Clark expedition and has spent significant time out West in Montana in particular, um, learning about the different native cultures and, and those people and has invested in the literature on native perspectives on Lewis and Clark. And I was actually able to go with him this summer out to Montana 
where we did a canoe trip on the upper Missouri uh, for a few days with a, a company called the Lewis and Clark Outfitters, Lewis and Clark Trail Outfitters, um, where an archaeologist specializing in Lewis and Clark actually went with us on the canoe trip and we could see various historic sites along the way. And we are offering for students a, a trip to do that same uh, route out there in Montana. So that's a one of the important next steps as well. So they can add uh, a physical connection to the land of Lewis and Clark into all these other experiential elements that they've had um, to really bring the course to life. And that, that raises a question that I think about with regards to my somewhat elaborate oral history project that I should acknowledge was inspired by a teacher at St. Andrews, Glenn Whitman, who wrote a book about pre-collegiate oral history called Dialogues with the Past. And that is the question of reproducibility. Like, uh, it's an amazing opportunity for your students. Do you ever wonder about the challenge of, you know, its broader significance to other teachers? Yeah, I mean, its reproducibility is limited, I would say, in some ways. Um, there are certain elements of the course which need not be limited. I think teaching botany in conjunction with Lewis and Clark history is one that I think is accessible to, to lots of schools. Um, and it's an element of Lewis and Clark's history that often is overlooked, but they did bring back tons of botanical specimens. It was part of their charge from Jefferson was to, to, to bring that material back, to make careful observations of it. And it was one of Lewis's great contributions to the expedition um, that's often overlooked. So I think weaving together botanical science with the history is a great opportunity to create an interdisciplinary course really anywhere. Um, and you could weave into that excursions outdoors to do some of that tree identification, again, bringing it to life with passages from the journals where Lewis is describing these species for the first time in sort of Western science. Um, the question of the canoe building is a bigger challenge. I think it, it requires more expertise, which is going to be you know, somewhat limited. Not I'm lucky enough to have had the experience of building five canoes prior to, to starting this course. So um, I had some, I guess I would say, limited level of expertise <clears throat> in doing it. Um, but most people probably haven't ever done that before. So that's a significant hurdle. And if there are other if there are other schools who have those kinds of woodshop facilities and teachers who have some canoe experience, I think it is certainly a worthwhile investment to go down that road. I think it really does bring the, the story of Lewis and Clark to life and also the plants of Lewis and Clark to life by incorporating both kind of into this canoe construction process. Sort of to cap things off here, I'm wondering, uh, what, what did you learn about yourself, about your students, about teaching? this sort of unusual experience in class? Um, a few things. I mean, one is that I think I already mentioned a little bit about my perfectionism for these things, but recognizing the joy that the students had in creating this product and their desire for it to be of high standards, but their, their joy in doing it was not contingent upon it being perfect. Um, and I think that was a an important lesson for me to learn in the process, to to enjoy the process, not let it keep me up at night, not let it stress me out, um, but enjoy it because it was something pretty magical that we were doing, uh, even if there were elements of it that were imperfect along the way. So that was definitely something that they indirectly or implicitly uh, impressed upon me uh, in the process. I also always like when I am able as a teacher to show students that I am 
still a learner also. I think when I'm teaching a, a more traditional biology course, like I said, it's something I've been doing for a long time and feel very comfortable teaching all of those topics. It may come across that I, well, I am somewhat of an expert on these things. They don't, they might not get to see all of the moments where I am also still digging in and learning and finding new answers. Um, although I, you know, I try to show that to them in my normal biology classes as well, but here it was just so much more evident. You know, we were figuring things out on the fly. When we came up with that idea for the STEM deck, the kids were there witnessing it, watching us try to solve the problem, watching us get frustrated with the things that we were encountering um, and watching us be a little bit resilient and creative. And um, I think that's so valuable for our students. So I think it was, it was probably important for all of us to have bumpy success um, and ultimately a final product that we can feel really proud of. But also, which has imperfections that show that a, a class of high school students with some pseudo expert teachers in canoe building were able to to do together. So I, you know, I'm going to push back against your reapplication of that prefix pseudo. I I think you can uh, own status as experts. Pretty, well, I appreciate that. I, you know, if you ask the people at the Wooden Canoe Heritage Association, I'd probably get into the <laughs> into the pseudo expert category. There's just so many people who have been building beautiful boats for their careers. Um, so I certainly don't put myself into that category. But yeah, but I, I bet they would understand your new calculation about perfection, too. Yeah, so, I'm sure, hey, I'm sure every, that's true. Everyone's a winner. All right. Well, um, so again, what's that? basic rundown for people now who've listened to it and they're at this point in the podcast, where should they go? What's that search sequence you described? Yeah, I think the, the best place to go is to lawrenceville.org. And then just in the upper right-hand corner, there's a little search menu, search wooden canoe journal. And there will be an article that comes up about the article that I wrote for the wooden canoe journal. It's called A Boat Full of Botany. Um, and that should come up right at the top of the, the search results there. Thank you so much for your time and explanation of this incredible project. And, you know, who knows, maybe down the road, we could talk again about subsequent canoes as your fleet gets bigger. Yeah, that'd be great. Any opportunity I get to, to talk about canoes, I'll seize on. Thank you for listening. Support Lunch Duty by going to www.lunchdutypodcast.com, scrolling to the bottom of the webpage, and signing up for the LDP email newsletter. Each new episode will appear in your inbox. In fact, that's by far the most significant way anyone interested in this project could support it. Please, really, uh, just sign up for our newsletter. This is executive producer Ken Woodard. Lunch Duty is recorded and edited by Ken Woodard. Theme music composed and recorded by Ray Ruskin. Credit roll music composed and recorded by Luke Woodard. In these challenging times, look out for each other, love your students, and keep teaching.